Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, and welcome back to Brainbow. So today on the podcast, we're going to be going over Chapter 3 of Part 2 of 1984. I'm going to go ahead and just jump right into this, and I, um, I'd like to finish this book soon because I, you know, I've been kind of skipping ahead because, um, you know, it's good, but I was hoping to make this more of like a um, read-along, you know, like um, a reaction video too, or a a reaction type of podcast, and um, to make it just more, you know, like authentic and uh, fluid and organic, just to see, you know, what a real life um, sort of response to this is. And so, I don't know, I just thought that would be more fun to do it that way. Um, plus, I don't want to have to read it twice, to be honest with you. It's not that, uh, you know, come on. I got, I'm reading, I got a lot of stuff on my, my plate right now. I'm reading a lot of other books. Um, I usually have about three books that I read at once, and they're like my friends, and I just kind of carry them around and pick them up here and there, and then, you know, do stuff in between, watch TV in between and stuff, and I'm just like, I'm always reading. It's just a comforting thing for me. It's a comforting thing for me doing. I'm still reading the Van Gogh letters to Theo. He's like, you know, Van Gogh's like my painter saint. So I am taking that pretty slowly. And um, I got this really cool book, Synonyms and Antonyms. And it's from 1914. And it's sometimes it's fun when you get a like an old book, like a dictionary. Um, but more, I like the, the synonyms and antonyms because it's amazing how much language changes and George Orwell talks about that too where things that used to mean something all of a sudden change and I just I just um realized this that the word conspiracy conspiracy you know it has I think a lot of people think you know they think that it means um just like a crazy idea that's absurd and nobody you know it's not true and it's just a wild um unscientific notion but it it actually came back from the word um junto which was the, you know, the collective group of Benjamin Franklin and um, those guys when they got together and they would, you know, well, they started out as philosophers, but then, you know, they basically become corrupt after a while. Wheel and deal, and then they have their own special interests. And, um, but depending on, you know, whose side you're on, you know, um, you wouldn't see that as as a bad thing. It's just you know, elites getting together and being wiser than the rest of us. I'm I'm not totally against that, you know. I um I I would like to have an oligarchy where you have a you know, a maybe like a group of twelve or eleven um it should be an odd number, you know. So maybe something like how about a baker's dozen? How about thirteen? You get you get like thirteen wise people and they I wouldn't mind if they made all the decisions because, you know, when I'm trying to vote, I don't even know what I'm doing half the time because you have to, like, investigate all of these laws and, you know, 
I just, I don't have time for that. Like, who has time for that, you know? Like, there's a few things that I know about, but I don't know about everything. And so it would be nice to, and the same thing with, like, juries. I don't really trust the jury system too much either. Because sometimes the way the lawyers can manipulate um, information and um, the juries may not be, you know, keyed into uh, crime as much as like judges are, you know, judges are, and you know, they usually have a pretty good read on people. Police, they tend to pick up, you know, like a, th- you know, like a sixth sense of people as well. Of course, a lot of there's, you know, prejudice and discrimination because once you see like too much of one thing, then, then you're, you know, you be you become biased because you just expect that and prejudice too. So with a jury, you don't know. You know, the way they select a jury is suspect and all that, too. So, um, of course, if the the Senate or oligarchy, if they're corrupt, that's, you know, terrible. But, like, any system could be good or bad. Um, democracy requires that we become actively engaged in the community and um, to be educated and... Um, not just knowledgeable about what's happening. And um, frankly, many of us are just way too busy to to participate in, you know, activities outside of work. Um, not, not myself. I mean, I have time for that. But I just don't do it because I see it as like, what's the point? I, I grew up in um, a generation where we have like this learned helplessness when it comes to politics. It's like, I mean, most, you know, I didn't, I mean, I, I've always voted, unless I wasn't living in, you know, in the country, but um, I always voted since I was 18, even though most of my peers were like, why are you going to vote? Like, there's no point in it. One vote doesn't make a difference. Um, and so, yeah, most of Generation X have this programmed apathy where they just don't care. And it's interesting now because you're seeing them turn around because they have kids and stuff. But, um, yeah, so, anyways, with that being said, reading language, you can see how, how, um, the culture changes over time. So, conspiracy basically used to mean that a group of people got together for unpatriotic reasons, but for special interests, to um, conspire to do something in their own interest, you know? So, yeah, it's like, duh. Isn't that business? Like, if if we still had that definition of conspiracy, everyone would be, like, believing in... Conspiracy would be a fact. It wouldn't be a theory. It'd be like, yeah, everybody is conspiring to get what they want, you know? But now it's like a conspiracy theory means that you believe in, like, the Earth is flat and aliens, you know. It's amazing how you could just completely discredit a person by calling them a name. And, you know, to call somebody crazy that, you know, that's probably worse than any other minority group. Females, you know, I know what it's like to be, oh, you're just a female, you know, and people don't really pay attention to you. Um, but I'm white, so at least I don't have to deal with 
grown up black and people, you know, dismissing you for that too. So, well, you know, what doesn't keep you down makes you stronger. I think that's probably why a lot of black women had to be like really strong because you had to adapt to all of that and um, you had to make yourself known. You had to get your point across. You couldn't, you know, so I am. Um, I'm going to start reading chapter three now. We can come here once again, said Julia. It's generally safe to use any hideout twice, but not for another month or two, of course. As soon as she woke up, her demeanor had changed. She became alert and businesslike, put her clothes on, nodded the, scar the scarlet sash around her waist, and began arranging the details of the journey home. It seemed natural to leave this to her. She obviously had a practical cunning, which Winston lacked, and she seemed also to have an exhaustive knowledge of the countryside around London, stored away from innumerable community hikes. The route she gave him was quite different from the one by which he had come and brought him out at a different railway station. Never go home the same way as you went out, she said, as though enunciating an important general principle. She would leave first, and Winston was to wait half an hour before following her. She had named a place where they could meet after work four evenings hence. It was a street in one of the poorer quarters where there was an open market which was generally crowded and noisy. She would be hanging about among the stalls pretending to be in search of shoelaces or sewing thread. If she judged that the coast was clear, she would blow her nose when he approached. Otherwise, he was to walk past her without recognition. But with luck in the middle of the crowd, it would be safe to talk for a quarter of an hour and arrange some meeting. And now I must go, she said, as soon as he had mastered his instructions. I'm due back at 19.30. I've got to put in two hours for the junior anti-sex league, handing out leaflets or something. Isn't it bloody? Give me a brush down, would you? Have I got any twigs in my hair? Are you sure? Then goodbye, my love. Goodbye. She flung herself into his arms, kissed him almost violently, and a moment later pushed her way through the saplings and disappeared into the wood with very little noise. Even now, he had not found out her surname or her address. However, it made no difference, for it was inconceivable that they could ever meet indoors or exchange any kind of written communication. As it happened, they never went back to the clearing in the wood. During the month of May, there was only one further occasion on which they actually succeeded in making love. That was in another hiding place known to Julia, the belfry of a ruined church in an almost deserted stretch of country where an atomic bomb had fallen 30 years earlier. It was a good hiding place when once you got there, but the getting there was very dangerous. For the rest, they could meet only in the streets in a different place every evening and never for more than half an hour at a time. In the street, it was usually possible to talk after a fashion. As they drifted down the crowded pavements, not quite abreast and never looking at one another, they carried on a curious intermittent conversation which flicked on and off like the beams of a lighthouse. I'm just trying to make sense of this. Are they walking home together? Um, okay. So, 
As they drifted down the crowded pavements, not quite abreast and never looking at one another, they carried on a curious intermittent conversation which flicked on and off like the beams of a lighthouse, suddenly nipped into silence by the approach of a party uniform or the proximity of a telescreen, then taken up again minutes later in the middle of a sentence, then abruptly cut short as they parted at the agreed spot, then continued almost without introduction on the following day. Julia appeared to be quite used to this kind of conversation, which she called talking by installments. She was also surprisingly adept at speaking without moving her lips. Just once in almost a month of nightly meetings, they managed to exchange a kiss. They were passing in silence down a side street. Julia would never speak when they were away from the main streets. When there was a deafening roar, the earth heaved and the air darkened, and Winston found himself lying on his side, bruised and terrified. A rocket bomb must have dropped quite near at hand. Suddenly, he became aware of Julia's face, a few centimeters from his own, deathly white, as white as chalk. Even her lips were white. She was dead. He clasped her against him and found that he was kissing a live, warm face. But there was some powdery stuff that got in the way of his lips. Both of their faces were thickly coated with plaster. Wow, so... Um... They're walking down the street and a bomb goes off and there's like white, you know, plaster everywhere. He thought she was dead. There were evenings when they reached their rendezvous and then had to walk past one another without a sign because a patrol had just come around the corner or a helicopter was hovering overhead. Even if it had been less dangerous, it would still have been difficult to find time to meet. Winston's working... Week was 60 hours, Julia's was even longer, and their free days varied according to the pressure of work and did not often coincide. Julia, in any case, seldom had an evening completely free. She spent an astonishing amount of time in attending lectures and demonstrations, distributing literature for the Junior Anti-Sex League, preparing banners for Hate Week, making collections for the savings campaign and such like activities. It paid, she said, it was camouflage. If you kept the small rules, you could break the big ones. She even induced Winston to mortgage yet another of his evenings by enrolling himself for the part-time munition work, which was done voluntarily by zealous party members. So, one evening every week, Winston spent four hours of paralyzing boredom, screwing together small bits of metal, which were probably parts of bomb fuses, and a droughty, ill-lit workshop where the knocking of hammers mingled drearily with the music of the telescreens. When they met in the church tower, the gaps in their fragmentary conversations were filled up. It was a blazing afternoon. The air in the little square chamber above the bells was hot and stagnant and smelt overpoweringly of pigeon dung. They sat talking for hours on the dusty, twig-littered floor, one or other of them getting up from time to time to cast a glance through the narrow slits and make sure that no one was coming. Julia was 26 years old. She lived in a hostel with 30 other girls, always in the stink of women. How I hate women, she said. And she worked, as he had guessed, on the novel writing machines in the fiction department. She enjoyed her work, which consisted chiefly in running and servicing a powerful but tricky electric motor. She was not clever, but 
was fond of using her hands and felt at home with machinery. She could describe the whole process of composing a novel, from the general directive issued by the planning committee down to the final touching up by the rewrite squad, but she was not interested in the finished product. She didn't much care for reading, she said. Books were just a commodity that had to be produced like jam or bootlaces. She had no mentions of anything before the early 60s, and the only person that she had ever known who talked frequently of the days before the revolution was a grandfather who had disappeared when she was eight. At school, she had been captain of the hockey team and had won the gymnastics trophy two years running. She had been a troop leader in the spies and a branch secretary in the youth league before joining the junior anti-sex league. She had always borne an excellent character. She had even an infallible mark of good reputation, been picked out to work in Pornosec, the subsection of the fiction department, which turned out cheap pornography for distribution among the proles. It was nicknamed Muckhouse by the people who worked in it, she remarked. There she had remained for a year, helping to produce booklets and sealed packets with titles like Spanking Stories or One Night in a Girls' School to be bought furtively by... Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, proletarian youths who were under the impression that they were buying something illegal. What are these books like, When said Winston curiously. Oh, ghastly rubbish. They're boring, really. They only have six plots, but they swap them around a bit. Of course, I was only on the kaleidoscopes. I was never in the rewrite squad. I'm not literary, dear. Not even enough for that. He learned with astonishment that all the workers in porno sec, except the head of the department, were girls. The theory was that men, whose sex instincts were less controllable than those of women, were in greater danger of being corrupted by the filth they handled. They don't even like having married women there, she added. Girls are always supposed to be so pure. Here's one who isn't, anyway. She had had her first love affair when she was 16 with a party member of 60, who later committed suicide to avoid arrest. And a good job, too, said Julia. Otherwise, they'd have had my name out of him when he confessed. Since then, there had been various others. Life, as she saw it, was quite simple. You wanted a good time. They, meaning the party, wanted to stop you from having it. You broke the rules as best you could. She seemed to think it just as natural as they should want to rob you of your pleasure as that you should want to avoid being caught. She hated the party and said so in the crudest words, but she made no general criticism of it, except where it touched upon her own life. She had no interest in the party doctrine. He noticed that she never used new speak words, except the ones that had passed into everyday use. She had never heard of the Brotherhood and refused to believe in its existence. Any kind of organized revolt against the party, which was bound to be a failure, struck her as stupid. The, cl- the clever thing was to break the rules and stay alive all the same. He wondered vaguely how many others like her there might be in the younger generation, people who had grown up in the world of the revolution, 
knowing nothing else, accepting the party as something unalterable like the sky, not rebelling against its authority, but simply evading it as a rabbit dodges a dog. They did not discuss the possibility of getting married. It was too remote to to be worth thinking about. No imaginable committee would ever sanction such a marriage, even if it... Even if Catherine, Winston's wife, could somehow have been rid, gotten rid of, it was hopeless, even as a daydream. What was she like, your wife, said Julia. She was, do you know the new speak word, good thinkful, meaning naturally orthodox and capable of thinking a bad thought? No, I didn't know that word, but I know the kind of person right enough. He began telling her the story of his married life. But curiously enough, she appeared to know the essential parts of it already. She described to him almost as though she had seen or felt it. The stiffening of Catherine's body as soon as he touched her. The way in which she still seemed to be pushing him from her with all her strength even when her arms were clasped tightly around him. With Julia, he felt no difficulty in talking about such things. Catherine, in any case, had long ceased to be a painful memory and be and become merely a distasteful one. I could have stood it if it hadn't been for one thing, he said. He told her about the frigid little ceremony that Catherine had forced him to go through on the same night every week. She hated it, but nothing would make her stop doing it. She used to call it... But your Neville... Your Neville... Neville, Neville guess. You'll never guess. Sorry, it's my speech impediment here. Our duty to the party, said Julia promptly. How did you know that? I've been at school too, dear. Sex talks once a month for the over-sixteens and in the youth movement. They rub it into you for years. I dare say it works in a lot of cases, but of course you can never tell. People are such hypocrites. She began to enlarge upon the subject. With Julia, everything came back to her own sexuality. As soon as this was touched upon in any way, she was capable of great acuteness. Unlike Winston, she had grasped the inner party meaning of the party's sexual puritanism. It was not merely that the sex instinct created a world of its own, which was outside the party's control, and which therefore had to be destroyed if possible. What was more important was that sexual privation-induced hysteria, which was desirable because it could be transformed into war fever and leader worship, the way she put it was. When you make love, you're using up energy, and afterwards you feel happy and don't give a damn for anything. And they can't bear you to feel like that. They want you to be bursting with energy all the time. All this marching up and down and cheering and waving flags is simply sex gone sour. If you're happy inside yourself, why should you get excited about Big Brother and the three-year plans and the two-minute hate and all the rest of their bloody rot? That was very true, he thought. There was a direct, intimate connection between chastity and political orthodoxy. For how could the fear, the hatred, and the lunatic credulity which the party needed in its members be kept at the right pitch except by bottling down some powerful instinct and using it as a driving force? The sex impulse was dangerous to the party, and the party had turned it, in, turned it to account. They had played a similar trick with the instinct of parenthood. The family could not actually be abolished, and indeed people were encouraged to be fond of their children in almost the old-fashioned way. The children, on the other hand, were systematically turned against their parents and taught to spy on them and report their deviations. The family had become, in effect, an extension of the thought police. It was a device by means 
of which everyone could be surrounded night and day by informers who knew him intimately. I think this is like brilliant. Um, this, this paragraph here about describing the sex instinct. It's like, this is deep psychology. And I, I believe that this is true, that they know about how to repress the sex instinct and to use it to sell stuff and to get it put, you know, get us, um, worked up over nonsense. Abruptly, his mind went back to Catherine. Catherine would unquestionably have denounced him to the thought police if she had not happened to be too stupid to detect the unorthodoxy of his opinions. But what really recalled her to him at this moment was the stifling heat of the afternoon which had brought the sweat out on his forehead. He began telling Julia of something that had happened, or rather had failed to happen, on another sweltering summer afternoon eleven years ago. It was three or four months after they were married. They had lost their way on a community hike somewhere in Kent. They had only lagged behind the others for a couple of minutes, but they took a wrong turning and presently found themselves pulled up short by the edge of an old chalk quarry. It was a sheer drop of ten or twenty meters with boulders at the bottom. There was nobody of whom they could ask the way. As soon as she realized that they were lost, Catherine became very uneasy. To be away from the noisy mob of hikers, even for a moment, gave her a feeling of wrongdoing. She wanted to hurry back by the way they had come and start searching another direction. But at this moment, Winston noticed some tufts of loose strife growing in the cracks of the cliff beneath them. One tuft was of two colors, magenta and brick red, apparently growing on the same root. He had never seen anything of the kind before, and he called to Catherine to come and look at it. Look, Catherine, look at the flowers that clump down near the bottom. Do you see they're two different colors? She had already turned to go, but she did rather fretfully come back for a moment. She even leaned out over the cliff face to see where he was pointing. He was standing a little behind her, and he put his hand on her waist to steady her. At this moment, it suddenly occurred to him how completely alone they were. There was not even a human creature anywhere, not a leaf stirring, not even a bird awake. In a place like this, the danger that there would be a hidden microphone was very small, and even if there was a microphone, it would only pick up sounds. It was the hottest, sleepiest hour of the afternoon. The sun blazed down upon them. The sweat tickled his face, and the thought struck him. Why didn't you give her a good shove, said Julia? I would have. Yes, dear, you would have. I would have if I'd been the same person that I am now. Perhaps I would. I'm not certain. Are you sorry you didn't? Yes, on the whole, I'm sorry I didn't. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's sick and twisted and kind of funny in a Twilight Zone way. Um, I and Or Alfred Hitchcock type of way. I've, I've heard so many of these cases where people, they go out on a hike and they never come back. And I'll... I, I mean, I know it's, it's not like they're all murdered victims, but I bet there's a lot that go unreported and, you know, they're just like, oh, that's such a tragedy. And then I could see that, that happening. They were sitting side by side on the dusty floor. He pulled her closer against him. Her head rested on his shoulder, the pleasant smell of her hair conquering the pigeon dung. She was very young, he thought. She still expected something from life. She did not understand that to push in an inconvenient person over a cliff sells nothing. Actually, it would have made no difference, he said. Then why are you sorry you didn't do it? Only because I prefer a positive to a negative. 
In this game that we're playing, we can't win. Some kinds of failure are better than other kinds, that's all. He felt her shoulders give a wriggle of dissent. She always contradicted him when he said anything of this kind. She would not accept it as a law of nature that the individual is always defeated. In a way, she realized that she herself was doomed, that sooner or later the thought police would catch her and kill her. But with another part of her mind, she believed that it was somehow possible to construct a secret world in which you could live as you chose. All you needed was luck and cunning and boldness. She did not understand that there was no such thing as happiness, that the only victory lay in the far future, long after you were dead, that from the moment of declaring war on the party it was better to think of yourself as a corpse. We are the dead, he said. We're not dead yet, said Julia. Not physically. Six months a year, five years, conceivably. I am afraid of death. You are young, so presumably you're not afraid of it, like I am. Obviously, we shall put it off as long as we can. But it makes very little difference. So long as human beings stay human, death and life are the same thing. Oh, rubbish. Which would you sooner, sleep with me or be a skeleton? Don't you enjoy being alive? Don't you like feeling? This is me. This is my hand. This is my leg. I'm real. I'm solid. I'm alive. Don't you like this? She twisted herself around and pressed her bosom against him. He could feel her breasts ripe yet firm through her overalls. Her body seemed to be pouring some of its youth and vigor into his. Yes, I like that, he said. Then stop talking about dying. And now listen, dear. We've got to fix up about the next time we meet. We may as well go back to the place in the wood. We're, we've given it a good long rest, but you must get there by a different way this time. I've got it all planned out. You take the train, but look, I'll draw it out for you. And in her practical way, she scraped together a small square of dust and with a twig from a pigeon's nest, began drawing a map on the floor. Okay, so that concludes chapter three. What do you think about these two people? Do you think that, you know, that they're good? Do you think they're corrupt? I mean, if they, if, if Winston and Julia had all the power that, you know, two humans could have during that time, uh, how do you think they would have used it? Do you think they would have been any better than the party members? Um, you know, this, this little piece of information about how he wishes he would have killed his wife. His wife is not even around. Like, I don't know why he would, they don't have any children, you know, um, it just seems psych like psychopathic to, I would have, you know, that's what psychopaths do. They laugh about that stuff, you know, um, so, but it seems like everybody's like that where they are. It's, you know, Anyways, I'm just reading this and I'm like, always kind of thought crimes would you, would you have if the government could read your mind? I've come to terms with this a long time ago, you know, like back when the um, United States was just beginning the war with Afghanistan. I, I, I've thought about that and I'm like, well, if they could read all of our emails and see what we're doing online, it's like you're kind of like in a jail cell where they could watch you through the windows and eventually you just get used to it and you just continue to, you know, like an animal in a zoo, you forget that they're even there or else, you know, you just drive yourself crazy thinking about being watched and stuff. But you know, it's not just that, but what about God reading your mind? I mean, a lot of people, they, they say they believe in God, but 
They think that they could act one way and then think another way and somehow God will be okay with that. Like if you, how many people are actually really good? If the government could read our minds, like what would they think of people? What do you, what do you think the average person thinks about or the average person is capable of? Like what if there were no cops? What if, you know, there, what, there were no laws? Um, you know, I think about that kind of stuff and, you know, like yesterday I was saying I was driving around and I was just like, had one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I, everyone sucks. I'm, I don't like anybody. And it's not always like that. It's just, you know, there is that element in people, but then there's a lot of really good people. And I think that, that like, you know, like I was saying before about going to festivals and sporting events and stuff, when you get a bunch of people together and there's nobody around and something bad happens and they need to band together, like, you know, the Canadian truckers or the Freedom Convoy and stuff, you know, or, you know, school um, PTA meetings and stuff, people just come together and they just, you know, are charitable. And it feels good to be nice to people and um, we feed off of that, like, friendliness. It feels good. And I think that that's what humanity naturally is. But there's just a few, pe you know, bad apples that can ruin it. And once one of them gets in there and they, they abuse somebody, then that person gets a chip on their shoulder and then they adapt to it and then they start abusing people and then it's just, like, survival of the fittest and you know, survival of the biggest asshole, really. Not the survival of the friendly friendliest. Um, so that's debatable. But, you know, there's always that person who's crafty and cunning more so than others and who's willing to do things that nobody else would even consider doing. So, um, yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being with me here today. And I hope to see you tomorrow where we'll be reading Chapter 4 of 1984, Part 2. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus